You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Part of what the distribution utilities and their regulators need to be asking is how do we start to modernize the distribution grid to be able to sustain this more decentralized future? Yes, of course, costs will keep falling. I mean, do you expect your computers to stop getting better and cheaper? For September 15th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Marine energy, a collection of diverse technologies designed to capture energy from the ocean in various ways, has for decades languished far behind more mature renewable technologies like wind, solar, and geothermal energy. The reasons for its slow progress are as diverse as the technologies themselves, but there are some indications that a few of these technologies have learned from the failures of the past and are finally becoming mature enough to reach commercial scale. Should they succeed in doing so, they offer the tantalizing potential to provide virtually limitless amounts of clean power 24-7 for a wide variety of applications, from power supplied by cable to onshore grids, to desalination of fresh water, to standalone devices operating out in the deep ocean, to devices that can convert the electricity they generate into synthetic liquid fuels that can be transported by ship, even to carbon capture technologies. Altogether, our various uses of ocean resources are sometimes called the blue economy, which refers to not just energy production, but also shipping, fishing, aquaculture, and other uses. But if we are to use the marine environment sustainably, we have to do so carefully, being mindful of the impact our technologies will have on the marine environment and its wildlife residents. And that means that we need to perform some solid scientific studies so we know what the impacts will be. Our guest in this episode is eminently qualified as an expert on these subjects and is actively engaged in that research. Dr. Andrea Copping is a senior research scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Lab, or PNNL, in Richland, Washington, one of the 17 national laboratories overseen and funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. Dr. Copping is a distinguished faculty fellow at the University of Washington, and her research focuses on environmental effects from the development of wave and tidal energy and offshore wind installations. Dr. Copping leads a team that integrates laboratory, field, and modeling studies into a coherent body of evidence to support siting and consenting decisions, and she leads OES Environmental, an international project on environmental effects of marine energy development around the world under the auspices of IEA Ocean Energy Systems. Andrea also leads the research and development program for the use of marine energy devices to power blue economy applications. Whether you've been following the marine energy sector for a long time, or you're learning about it for the first time today, I'm sure you'll find lots of interesting nuggets in what Andrea has to say. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll take a look at an exciting new tidal turbine project. We'll note several lawsuits designed to make oil companies pay for the climate-related damages they're causing. We'll review another failed carbon capture and sequestration project. We'll consider the implications of California's new building codes. And we'll recognize yet another astroturfing campaign by the natural gas industry. And before we go to the interview, I just want to remind our annual subscribers about some of our new features. Be sure to check out our new job board on our website, which is adding new job listings all the time. Annual subscribers can post jobs or respond to job postings there for free. And if you want to share the Energy Transition Show with a friend, remember that every annual subscriber has three free share links they can give out each year, which grants the recipient access to our two most recent episodes for one month. 
So if you think you know someone who really should listen to one of our current episodes, give them one of your share links. Or if you want to buy an annual subscription for someone as a gift so they can enjoy our entire catalog of full episodes, you can do that too. You can find those options on our managed subscription page on our website. Finally, remember that we offer half-priced annual subscriptions to students, as well as graduated discounts for groups, academic institutions, corporations, and other organizations. You can find all of our subscription options and discounts by clicking on the Become a Member button on our website. Speaking of which, I want to extend a big welcome to GE Gas Power, who have taken a group subscription to the show to use it for internal training purposes. We're always honored and pleased to hear that our show is being used to educate the energy transition specialists of the future. And if any of you are university professors who are interested in using our show as coursework, as many professors already do, just put us in touch with your school librarian so we can give them a free evaluation of a very reasonably priced site license that will make the show available to the whole university, just like any other journal. And now, our conversation with Andrea Copping, recorded August 3rd, 2021. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Andrea, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here to have a chance to talk about marine energy. Right on. So for the past several years, you and your colleagues at PNNL and NREL have been researching the state of the marine energy industry. And in 2019, you published a report on your findings titled Powering the Blue Economy. So just to get us started, why don't you explain what the blue economy is and describe the range of that research? Great question. We tend to use the World Bank definition of blue economy, and what they have to say is that it is the sustainable use of ocean resources for economic growth, improved livelihoods, and jobs, while still preserving the health of ocean ecosystems. So this means blue economy could be everything from transoceanic shipping, capture fisheries, aquaculture, includes observation systems at sea that provide data for weather forecasts and search and rescue, and it also includes increased knowledge of the oceans. So we need to do all this so we can protect the oceans and the animals that live there, but at the same time we can really benefit from the bounty of the oceans. We know that the ocean economy is large now, but it's expected to double by 2030 to about $3 trillion worldwide. Wow. So the research we do centers around this idea that many of the blue economy uses are powered by fossil fuels, which are unsustainable, or by batteries, which they use for ocean observation platforms. Think about buoys at sea that are anchored or autonomous underwater vehicles. They're mm. all run off batteries. Okay. So what we want to do is try and produce power at sea. We'll use the waves, the tides, the ocean currents, and other forces to power these uses, and therefore make it easier for these blue economy industries and so on to thrive. But at the same time, we're using marine energy to cut fossil fuel emissions, and we even believe that we can help remove carbon dioxide from the ocean to further mitigate climate change. So that's sort of in a nutshell what we're trying to do. The other thing we do at the same time, we call it resilient coastal communities, we're trying to supply marine energy to remote coastal areas and islands that are again using fossil fuels to generate electricity. We think we can get a great deal of use out of this. Think about coastal Alaska or perhaps islands in the Caribbean. The other very cool thing about marine energy, we can generate electricity, but we can also do mechanical work directly from the power of the waves and the ocean movement. And this can let you do things like desalinate seawater and provide power in other ways. 
Okay, great. So I'm hearing first a real emphasis on basically offshore applications, but then also providing energy for nearshore uses, some sort of a cable connecting to the land. So let's take a deeper dive, if you will, <laughs> into those two major categories of marine energy, starting with the nearshore energy for coastal and island communities. I believe there are two main types of technologies here. There's wave energy and there's tidal current energy. And there are numerous designs for various devices that can capture energy with each of those types, aren't there? You're absolutely right. So right now, most of the existing devices that have been developed, that have been tested and deployed at sea and are harvesting energy are from waves and tides. Though there are a lot of other means of capturing ocean energy, large ocean currents, thermal gradients, etc. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to dive into a few of those just to give you and your audience a little better idea of what we're talking about. Yeah, here. that'd be great. So let's start with tidal energy. We know this comes from you have the ocean running through a narrow area and the tides run very fast through there. Now, what we use to capture these are turbines, and they're not very different from the water turbines that are used in hydropower dams, or even they look the same as air or gas turbines we use in other energy sources. So there's a central hub, and then there's a bunch of rotating blades around it. They're either organized around a horizontal hub, so standing level, or a vertical hub standing upright. And there's all kinds of variations. You might put a venturi or sort of a funnel on the front of it to make the water go faster. Some are even stuck in the bottom and the head sort of rotates like a screw. We put these tidal turbines either right down on the bottom with a lot of heavy weight to withstand the currents, or there's some models that are floating like sort of a semi-submerged submarine. They're anchored to the bottom and then the turbine blades are underneath them. So that's sort of the main things we see in tidal turbines. When we get to trying to harvest wave energy, we have to use many different kinds of devices because the waves are harder to capture. So imagine you're standing on the shore and watching waves come in and you see they're coming at you from slightly different directions. They're different sizes, different widths, different heights. So there's many different ways you can go about capturing this energy. Some of them are surface buoys that are anchored to the bottom and they bob up and down with the waves against a reaction plate generating power. There's some that sit on the seafloor and they move pressurized air sort of between two inflatable bags as the wave passes over. There's some that are designed to look like kelp, so they're sort of waving in the water flow. There's others that ride on top of the waves, kind of like a snake, flexing up and down. So there's a lot of different ways that people are trying to capture waves, and there hasn't really been a lot of technology convergence there. So a couple of other technologies I'd love to tell you about. We are looking at harvesting waves from the persistent ocean currents, especially on the western side of the ocean basins. You get this what's called western intensification. You get very strong currents that are narrow and well-defined. The one we know best is the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. There's also the Shio Current going past Japan. And there's a lot of energy there, and it flows all the time. So there's been tests with really large, they look like really large tidal turbines but they're set partway down in the water column, not at the surface, not at the bottom, but suspended there so they can take this flow. And then they're anchored in really, really deep water. So are these currents part of the thermohaline conveyor? Well, yes, they're part of the whole ocean conveyor belt, if you will. And we have currents throughout the ocean, but those ones on the western side of the basins happen to be much narrower, well-defined, and really full of energy. So those are the ones we go after. It's one off South Africa, you know, et cetera. 
So one other really promising technology I'd love to tell you about is known as OTEC, or Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion. And this is based on heat exchange from warm surface water in the tropics to cold deep sea water. And the technology is fairly simple, but big. It consists of a very long cold water pipe that brings cold water up and a shorter warm water pipe that brings it into the plant. You have pumps, heat exchangers, turbines. Then you return the cold water at some sort of intermediate depth, so it's not a temperature shock to the surface water and the animals living there. And then the warm water can just be returned to the surface. There's two major kinds of these OTEC cycles. One is called a closed cycle where you use a gas like ammonia to do that heat exchange and then you just send the water back out. There's also an open cycle where you use the seawater itself to actually cross the heat exchanger surfaces. And the beauty of the open cycle is you can also desalinate seawater that way. So you can get fresh water out of it. You can also use the cold water for air conditioning, for other pre-cooling. So you're basically just taking advantage of the difference in temperature between the surface and the deep sea, and you're generating power with that temperature difference. How much of a temperature difference is there between those two points? Well, to make these cycles effective, you need about a 20 degree centigrade difference, which is why you can really only do OTEC in the tropics, where the water at the surface gets high enough. The deep ocean water is cold. It's down at two to four degrees centigrade always. So it's how warm you can get it. I want to just mention one other technology around tidal devices, and that's a tidal barrage. This is essentially a dam that is built across the mouth of an estuary, and then it has turbines in it, much like a hydropower dam. And so the rise and fall of the tides, it fills the reservoir behind the barrage, and then it empties it through the turbines. It means you can generate power on the incoming and the outcoming tides. Something else called a tidal lagoon, it's really similar, but it sort of encloses an area of water in a bay that doesn't include the river mouth. So these are really efficient ways to harness tidal energy. You get it all, just like a hydro dam. But we're no longer building these in the Western nations because they destroy the estuary. They just take it out of existence. We don't know as much about tidal lagoons because there really aren't much anywhere. We think the environmental effects will be less, but we don't know yet. One of the oldest such systems in the world is the Rance Tidal Station in Brittany, France, which was built in 1966. I remember researching that for a Mm -hmm. book I wrote. Fantastic. Okay, so, and then there's also one more, isn't there, which has to do with the salinity gradient. Salinity gradients, yeah, good point. Let me mention those. So ocean water we know is saline. It has a certain amount of salt in it. And where a river enters the ocean, you get a big difference in salinity. And you can, in fact, generate some power through an osmotic process where you use a membrane. You might go back to sort of high school science and you can separate certain ions on one side of a membrane from water on another. And across that membrane, you do get some electrical conductivity. So you can, in fact, use the right kind of membranes and you can get some electricity that way. It's really only useful where you have a big salinity difference like where a river enters the sea. We have, in fact, been researching these much smaller salinity gradients for electrical possibilities, and they don't seem that great. You need pretty big ones. Yeah. Okay, so that was a really helpful review of the different technologies. Now let's talk about kind of where we are with these technologies. Like, what's the state of the art? Are there any 
notable projects that are producing results in the real world that we can talk about? Or are we still kind of more in a demonstration project phase and we're still waiting for these technologies to mature and become commercially viable? I would say the bulk of them are in the development, testing, and early deployment stages. However, we do have commercial projects. The European nations have been further ahead than North America, simply because they got started earlier and put a lot more effort into it. They've actually got several title projects. The most notable one, called the Maygen Project, is north of Scotland, between the Scottish mainland and the islands up there. And it's been putting electricity into the grid for some time. We have some small projects in the U.S. One is in a river in Alaska. And in the rivers, we just use smaller versions of the tidal turbines. They're just going one way instead of both ways. This project in the Quijak River near Igiagig, Alaska, is actually in partnership with the village of Igiagig. It's a state of Maine firm that has been running this project. It's small, but it meets many of the needs anyway of the village. There's also a small tidal project that's been actually going on for quite a few years off and on in the East River of New York. Obviously, it's not going to supply New York, but it is supplying a little bit of Roosevelt Island. So in many cases with the wave devices, we're mostly in the testing stage although Australia has had several deployed for a number of years. What usually happens with these projects is they'll put one, two, three devices in, leave them for a year or two, really to more prove out the technology, then replace them with bigger ones, different ones, etc. And some of the European countries have also been generating power from waves. And where they can, they're putting it directly into their grids. What we are also seeing is the emergence of a lot of small projects in island nations. There's small tidal projects underway in the Philippines and Indonesia, where you may have not the huge tidal currents we see in Alaska or north of Scotland, but enough to supply islands. We are seeing ocean thermal energy conversion projects in Korea, in Japan, in the Caribbean. There's one OTEC project in Japan that's been going for eight or 10 years now. And we, of course, have a very long running OTEC projects in Hawaii. And big tidal projects are starting to be built in Korea, Japan, and China. So yeah, we're getting there. We're not there and we are not at what I would call a full commercial industry, but we've got a lot of the sort of hallmarks of it. Okay, and so it sounds like if I tracked everything you just said there, the most advanced technologies, the ones that are maybe closest to commercial status are these tidal turbines mm -hmm. and of course these older tidal barrages that we're not building many new ones. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. That is correct. I would say OTEC is as well. We okay. just haven't been able to spread it quite as fast. Okay. I wonder about it because I remember researching marine energy when I was, as I mentioned earlier, when I was writing a chapter for it on a book titled Investing in Renewable Energy, which was published in 2008. And at the time, I was tracking a number of demonstration scale marine energy projects, but then I just stopped hearing about them. And I wonder why. Like, why do you think these marine energy technologies have been so slow to advance to pilot and then commercial stage projects? It's a great question, and it frustrates many of us. <laughs> I think going back to really first principles, working in the ocean is really difficult, and it takes a lot of concentration to create the kind of robust devices that can stand both the physical forces and then the corrosion of seawater mm -hmm. over a long period of time. As soon as you work at sea, whether you're testing, deploying, maintaining, etc., it's expensive and it's dangerous, and particularly in the 
high energy areas where we go to harvest energy. I'm an oceanographer by training, and I would not choose to put my gear in these places if I didn't have to. They're that difficult. Yeah. So testing and deployment's really expensive. It can be literally millions for a single at-sea test, mm. and there hasn't been enough investment. There's also, and this is getting a little philosophical, we haven't really allowed enough room for failure. And that's how we learn in technologies. Sure. This is a new technology where we don't have very many analogs. We're starting from scratch. And if you look back historically, it's taken new technologies that really start that way, like wind or oil and gas drilling. It takes decades. I think it's also important to note that it's been really challenging for marine energy developers to get through the permitting process in a reasonable time frame. We see that regulators and stakeholders want to take a really precautionary approach to the oceans. Everybody feels the oceans are theirs and they really want to protect them. Marine energy seems to be taking the biggest hit of the industries as sort of the last industry in. So if we look at all these sort of technology and environmental concerns, we really have to resolve these to give confidence to utilities, to investors, and so on. You know, given the obvious need for sort of federal R&D money, you know, the kind of money mm -hmm. that you'd use for early stage technologies that are nowhere near getting to the point where private sector capital can support them. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's anything for marine energy technology in the new infrastructure bill we've been hearing about. <laughs> it's a great question. We don't know yet, do we? No, no. I will say that the U.S. Department of Energy has been fairly close to the only supporter on the U.S. government throughout this process hmm. the last 10, 12 years, and they've made a big commitment. We have seen growing budgets, particularly recently, which makes us all very confident that we will be able to move faster, and we're certainly hoping for the new infrastructure bill to be a help there, too. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The most powerful tidal turbine installed to date began sending electricity to the grid in Orkney, Scotland in July. Called Orbital O2, the 2-megawatt, 680-ton, 74-meter-long turbine is anchored in the fast-flowing waters of the Fall of Warness and connected to the onshore grid via a subsea cable. The turbine's superstructure floats on the surface of the water, while two 10-meter-wide rotors attached to its legs spin in the passing tidal flow underneath. Some of the power generated is being used to power an onshore electrolyzer to generate green hydrogen. Orbital is now looking to scale up the technology to multi-megawatt arrays. The project was funded by public lenders through the ethical investment platform Abundance Investment and by the Scottish government's Saltier Tidal Energy Challenge Fund. Item 2. Colorado's Boulder County has filed a lawsuit against ExxonMobil and Suncor, a Canadian oil company with a U.S. headquarters in Colorado, for contributing to climate change, leading to extensive damage. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.